Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Tonight we're going to be introducing the book of Philippians. So I'm letting you know ahead of time, tonight's going to be less of a Bible study and a bit more of a history lesson. So I hope you brought a notebook and we're ready to, to dig into some of the context of the book of Philippians. So if you would go ahead and pull out a pen, pencil, your phone, if you've got something to take notes, that would be really good. Because this is going to help us to set up the framework for everything else moving forward. And so some of you are probably thinking like, well, why is this so important? Why is it that we're kind of getting a bit more of a history lesson, a little bit less of a Bible study? Like I kind of came for something maybe a little more applicable, something that I could kind of use right now. And I have three answers for you. Context, context, context. Context is key to understanding everything else and then rightfully applying everything that we're about to learn from the book of Philippians. You might ask, like, well, why are we getting to know the author? Well, think about it. When we get to know the author, it gives us valuable insight into the intentions of that author, right? Like, if we don't really know who they are, we might not really know what they're intending to say. But when you know somebody, when you have a relationship with them, you kind of know their character, their nature, what they're like. When they say something, it tends to carry a little bit more weight sometimes, right? Or maybe you better understand actually what they're trying to say because you have all of this other information. And so... When we understand who the author is, it helps us to even understand the intentions, but also the value of the statements being made. Um, For those of you who don't know, I have chronic foot and mouth syndrome. Anybody else identify with this? You kind of just seem like you're always kind of stepping in it, right? And so, see, I have this issue sometimes where I say things that I don't really intend to say, right? Right? Now, the wonderful thing is, is that I do this around my wife, and weirdly enough, most of the time she actually laughs, instead of actually getting upset. Now, why would that be? It's because she actually knows me better than that, right? So even though I might, you know, say the wrong thing, or or make, you know, maybe not phrase something quite right, she knows me better than that, and so she actually understands what I intended to say. Now, I'm not saying that there's like an error in the scriptures, and that you have to somehow figure out like what... Paul was actually trying to write. That's not what I'm saying. But when we know who he is, it helps us to understand what he's writing. Secondly, when we're looking at locations and dates, again, we're setting up context. This book, this letter, was written to a different people, wasn't it? During a different time, during a different location, which means a different culture, a different place, like different places, different way of doing things. Life was just different, right? And so when you're in a different location, oftentimes things that they do might be different than what we might do here, right? You know, I think of like missions trips where I've gone to Peru or something like that. It's very common to give somebody a kiss on the cheek when you're introducing yourself, right? Like it's it's a very normal form of introduction. Here, that's not really the same, right? Like that might kind of freak somebody out a little bit if you're meeting somebody for the first time in a coffee shop and you kiss them on the cheek. It might not, but... 
It very well could, right? Because it's not really like necessarily our culture here in Los Angeles. Or when I went to Korea, it's very common to bow when you're greeting people. And so even if you're just walking into a restaurant, you might give like a short or maybe a a deeper bow because that's very normal. But here, if I were to do that when I walk into a McDonald's, the guy might look at me funny, right? Now, it's not to say that it's necessarily wrong. It's just different because the culture is different. The values are different. What people appreciate is different. And the scriptures are no different than that. And so when we're reading through things, we might read something and interject this kind of U.S., you know, American Los Angeles mindset when that's not actually the correct mindset to have when you're reading it, right? You might be wanting to actually read it more from a Jewish perspective or a Greek perspective or a Roman perspective. And that's going to help us to better understand actually what's occurring. Dates are the same way. I mean, you think about Paul traveling, right? I don't think we always really realize this, but when it says like, okay, you know, and he walked this long distance, you know, maybe going from Rome to like another country or another city, like we tend to think like, oh, that's not that bad, you know, 60 miles or whatever. But we're thinking about it from this American's perspective where we have like, we have cars in 2022, right? Imagine Paul had to walk that whole way. That kind of changes the, the context of what's being stated, doesn't it? And so as we're digging into all of this context, it's going to help us to better understand what is occurring throughout the book of Philippians. And I apologize if this is just kind of like stuff you already know, but I figured it would be good to have a refresher as we're going over this because it's going to help us to better understand the book of Philippians. And then after that, it's going to help us to correctly apply it after the fact. And so context is huge. In fact, Philippians 4.13, I don't know if you know this, is probably one of the most misquoted verses in like the entire Bible. I hate to break it to you all, but it doesn't belong in the back of a jersey. <laughs> okay? It's like, it says, like, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about football. <laughs> what he's actually talking about is enduring trials. He's actually talking about suffering for the cause of the gospel. That's actually the context of what he's talking about. And so we'll get into that later. But context is very, very important. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at this with the proper perspective. It's an ancient book written to an ancient people in an ancient language being read by a modern audience, right? And so we have to understand that as we come to the book of Philippians. So, that being said, who wrote this letter? I think most of us will probably know this already, but if you don't, it was written by Paul the Apostle. And a little background on Paul. Paul was formerly... A Pharisee. In fact, in this very letter, he's going to say that he was kind of a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was kind of like the Jew of Jews, is basically what he's saying. That he is about as Jewish as somebody can be, is the statement that he makes. And so he was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee, but he was also a persecutor of the church at one point. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 7 and really go through chapter 9, what you're going to see is that Paul was formerly Saul... And Saul was actually the one who was responsible for the stoning of Stephen. Now, he didn't necessarily you know, actively participate, but he sat there and watched all of this happen and more or less approved of what was occurring. Now, it's possible that he did, but the reality is, is that that happened because of him. And then he went on, as Acts chapter 8 begins with, that he just ravaged the church. Now, the wonderful news is, is that Paul gets met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus strikes him blind. Paul can't see a thing. 
Yes, like, well, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Which I always kind of find that a little bit ironic. Anybody else? Like, just like, oh, Lord, who are you? It's like, Paul, I, Saul, I, I think you answered your question, buddy. <laughs> I think you know who this is. And the Lord grabs a hold of his heart. And then what does he do? He makes him a missionary to the Gentiles. And this is specifically important here because this is a Gentile church that he's writing to. In fact, a church that he himself planted. And so, Paul, in all of this, not only that, even though he was a Jew, was also a Roman citizen. And here's what's really cool about this. Because he was a Roman citizen, he also had the rights of a Roman citizen. And then on top of that, he would have an understanding of Roman culture. And this would have meant that Paul was likely multilingual. So he was probably somebody who not only knew Hebrew, but he probably also knew Greek, and probably Latin as well, because that was also yet another kind of common language of the day. And so this gave him a lot of opportunity to actually be a missionary, because he understood kind of the major cultures of the day, he could speak multiple languages, so it really gave him the opportunity to move around and plant churches like the one we see here in Philippi. Now, where was Paul writing this letter from? And this is going to be huge for this book because Paul is going to talk about some topics that we would probably not expect somebody in his situation to talk about. And so Paul, during this time, was in prison. Now, there's a little bit of speculation as to where he was, but most people tend to agree on the fact that he was imprisoned in Rome. This was the first time that he was imprisoned in Rome. And he actually was not sure whether he was going to be released or executed. So let's just throw that into the mix of all of this. Paul is imprisoned, writing a letter to the church to encourage them, and he himself doesn't even know if he's going to make it through to the next day. And yet we're going to see that he writes about joy and rejoicing. And again, this is all important contextual things because that adds considerable weight to what he says, doesn't he? If he's calling people to be content with where they're at, if he's telling people to rejoice in the Lord, if he's calling people to joy... And he himself is actually writing from a prison cell, not sure what's going to happen the next day. That gives him a lot of credit, doesn't it? That means Paul must either, he must either be a madman or he really believes what he's saying, right? And so Paul's writing this from prison. And it was written around AD 60 to AD 62. So it was not written in 2022, as we've already stated. And so who was he writing to? And where was he writing to? He was writing to this church in... Philippi. I think it's pretty obvious by the name, right? He was writing to the Philippians. And it was this, really, a, a European city. And what's really cool about this is this was likely actually the first real, like, European church. This was kind of like the beachhead for the gospel to go into Europe. And so it was this city in Europe, and it was comprised largely of uh, Thracians, Greeks, and Romans. It was made, made up of basically largely a Gentile population. Again, kind of coinciding with what God had called him to do. And there was very little Jewish population here in this city. And actually, at one point, Philippi was actually a showpiece of Greek culture, and significant energy, resources, effort was actually put into making this city uh, what it was. And so they put a lot of time and effort into it. And actually, it was even the capital of the Greek Empire for a time until it was inevitably conquered by the Romans. And at that point, it actually became a Roman colony. Now, really what this would mean is that because it was a Roman colony, it was kind of like Rome in miniature. So it was really kind of an extension 
of Rome. And so even though it wasn't in Rome, basically, if you were in Philippi at the time, more or less, you basically were in Rome. That's the way that they looked at it. It was Roman soil as far as the Romans were concerned. Now, with that, if you lived in Philippi, you would have also gotten a considerable privilege. And this, uh, this privilege would essentially give you tax breaks. Uh, it would oftentimes give you uh, other rights that only Roman citizens would get. So there were actually times that Paul kind of got in trouble, right, with the authorities. And then he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all of a sudden go like, uh-oh, uh, we kind of made a mistake here, Right. You remember some of those instances? He says, yeah, you can't actually treat Roman citizens this way. And he's like, you're a Roman citizen? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, let him go, let him go, 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 go. Like, and so if you were a Philippian, you were essentially counted as a Roman. Now, Philippi was also a pagan city. It was not predominantly Christian. I think, you know, I think we could kind of assume that, right? Being as this is really the kind of the first gospel-centric church in the area. Uh, It's more than likely there were probably not even a lot of synagogues there, so Judaism really would not have been much of a thing in this city. And so they were very much a a pagan city, and so uh, they would have had multiple different types of religions that would have had different worship practices varying between sacrifices, animal sacrifices, sexual practices. So it really was not a Christian society. And so it was very much fresh for the gospel. And Christianity really would have just been kind of one of many religions at this point in their uh, nation's history. And actually, Christianity wasn't even really formally accepted or rejected at this point. They kind of just saw it as like an offshoot of Judaism. They're like, well, they kind of seem to believe a lot of the things that the Jews believe, so I guess it's kind of sort of Judaism. Now, eventually it would take a pretty sharp detour, right? Like they'd start to realize like, Eh, these are not really the same people, right? Like, they're not really Jews, like, in, in religion. They're actually something different. And eventually, persecution would continue to ramp up more and more and more. But what's interesting about this city is that it's, in a lot of ways, not unlike our own. It was multicultural. It was modern. It was a kind of a more progressive city. They were kind of open to, to new ideas and things of that nature. It was very much kind of part of the modern world at the time. And so what we're going to find is that even the issues that the Philippian church was dealing with are actually going to be very much things that we deal with here in the United States, uh, that things that we're even currently dealing with as a society. Now, when we look at the church of Philippi, what's really interesting is that they were not much like their city. Though they were uh, a Gentile church, they were also a very loyal church. They were carefully guarding relationships that they had. In fact, uh, we see this with Paul. Paul's thrown in prison, and they actually want to know how he's doing. They didn't just kind of say like, oh, well, sorry, Paul. See you, buddy. I guess things just didn't work out. They didn't abandon him. They stood by him. We're going to see that throughout the book of Philippians. And actually, countless times, they were also generous. They, they took care of him. They sent him money. Epaphroditus would actually go bringing a gift to Paul to help him as he's in prison. And so what we see with this church is that they were actually very much a church that modeled Jesus. And then on top of that, this was also a church where women played a prominent role within the church. 
and they were actually heavily involved in some of the, the spiritual battles around the area. And so they were not just kind of sitting on the sidelines, but were actually actively involved in this church. And so in many ways, this was actually a church to be modeled, despite some of the issues that we're going to see and explore here in a little bit. Now, all that being said, even though it's a church in Philippi, and even though Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, what, what links these two groups of people? Well, here really is the link between Paul and the church of Philippi. Paul had actually planted this church. So this was not just some church that he kind of sort of heard about, that he was trying to encourage. This was not somebody that he was just like, you know, kind of heard something was going on. They're like, ah, maybe I should help them out, even though I don't really know them. This was very much personal to Paul. This was a, a church that he was invested in. This was a church that he planted during his second missionary journey to Antioch. And as I said before, this was the first church that Paul planted in Europe. And so they were likely responsible for spreading much of the gospel throughout the European nation. It was the the beachhead, as it were. And not only that, there's three significant events that Paul was involved in that all took place in this area. First, we have the salvation of a woman named Lydia. You can actually see her in Acts chapter 16. In fact, all of these things really happen in Acts chapter 16. There was the salvation of a woman named Lydia. She was originally from Thyatira. Uh, That's a, a nation in Asia, and she was a merchant. She sold purple cloth and likely had relocated to Philippi um, really for that purpose. It was actually more than likely for, for work. It was for her job. And then she encounters Paul, and then what happens? She gets saved, and then eventually she's actually one of the people that we're going to hear about here in Philippians. And so she was actually a part of this church. The second event that we hear about is the exorcism of a demon-possessed girl. She was a slave girl that was being used by uh, some of the, the local people, and they were using her for gain. They're like, oh, well, she can predict the future and all this stuff. And so they were exploiting her for money. And then what happens? She gets set free by the gospel. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that she came to know Christ, but I think it's fairly well implied by what occurs. And then more than likely, she also joined this church as well. And then we also see Paul and Silas being freed from the Philippian jail that they were imprisoned in. And so this church was very much connected to Paul in his ministry. This was one church that he was very personally invested in. And again, this church actually supported Paul financially on more than one occasion. Uh, They were constantly helping him out on his missionary journey, making sure that he was taken care of, that he had everything that he needed to be able to do what God had called him to do. And so what we're going to find is that with this letter, it's very personal in tone. In fact, uh, what you'll find is that Philemon is probably the only other letter that is more personal than Philippians. Philippians, apart from that one letter, really is the most personal of all his epistles because he cared very much for this church. Now, all that being said... What is the book of Philippians really going to be about? So we've established the context. We've kind of established the who, the where, the when. Now let's go to why is this being written? What is being written? What is Paul intending to do with this letter? Well, first of all, we need to understand that this letter is not really a, a single thought. But you'll find with a lot of his other epistles, he kind of has one central idea, doesn't he? Like you think about like the book of Ephesians. He establishes the grace of God, and then he tells them, okay, since you've been saved by the grace of God, here's how you should live 
in the grace of God. This is what it looks like in your day-to-day practices, your everyday life. This is what it looks like in your marriage and parenting children. Like, he, he kind of goes like, here's the idea. Here's how to put it into practice. Philippians doesn't really follow that format so much. And it's really more a series of kind of smaller essays on various topics. So it's one letter. I'm not saying it's like a bunch of smaller letters all sent to this church. It's, it's still one letter that he wrote to them. But he kind of dresses a bunch of things. It's not really one central idea as much in the same way. Now, secondly, Paul wrote this. If we're digging into what this letter is really for, its purpose, what it was about... Uh, was originally written as a thank you note for their generosity in taking care of them. And we're actually going to see that within the first, um, really kind of the first couple of verses and really towards the end of the the letter, we're going to find that Paul is actually thanking them. He's just saying, hey, guys, thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for sending your your donations and your financial support. Like, I, I really appreciate that you are helping me carry the gospel throughout the world. And so this was very much intended to be a thank you to this church. Secondly, he wanted to give news of his situation and really assure the Philippian church that just simply because he was in prison, because he might be executed, that the gospel was not going to be hindered in any way. He didn't want them getting caught up in the fact that, like, oh, well, you know, if Paul dies, like, what are we going to do? You know, who's going to carry the gospel? Like, he wanted to assure them, like, hey, guys, even if I die, it's all good, okay? God's still got this. God's still the one doing the work. God's still the one carrying out the mission. He's using me to do it. But God can find somebody else. The gospel is not going to fall apart because something happens to me or because I'm in prison. And so the gospel is not ineffectual because I'm indisposed at the moment. And so he just really wanted to tell them about his situation and reassure them. He also wanted to address a growing problem of disunity. And so here's one of the things that I kind of previously alluded to before. Even though this was very much a solid church, it was a healthy church, and in a lot of ways it's a church to emulate, it still was not without its problems. And can I just say, every church has got its problems. There's no church that's perfect. You're always going to find issues. You're always going to find things that need to be dealt with because here's the reality. Churches are comprised of people and people aren't perfect, right? And where there's imperfect people spending time together, people are going to butt heads. That's what's going to happen. And that's kind of one of the things that was starting to kind of turn its ugly head here at this church. There was a growing sense of disunity. And Paul wanted to make sure that this got addressed because this is really one of those things that can mar the character of a church fairly strongly. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it's disunity that makes the church ineffective, isn't it? Like if we're fighting and we can't get along and we can't seem to agree on things, what's going to happen? Nothing's going to get done. Now, thankfully, God doesn't need us. He'll just work in spite of us. But it does shame the name of Christ, doesn't it? And so he wanted to make sure that this got dealt with. He wanted to make sure that this church wasn't getting split up. It wasn't getting divided. He wanted them to be united in Christ together under one mission and one purpose. And so he's going to address that issue. He was also going to address the Jewish legalism that was kind of creeping into the church. And this really isn't the first time we hear about this. Um, Ever since, you know, really the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church really kind of became a thing in the book of Acts, we saw that there were Jews that would come to Christ, but then they still kind of had this this kind of nature left over from Judaism where it's like, okay, well, even the Gentiles, though, it's like, you know, they still have to get circumcised and follow Jewish law and all this stuff. And, And when we talk about legalism, that's really what's being referred to. It wasn't like, 
you know, hey, you can't necessarily, you know, you, you can't go to that sporting event. Like, that's not really what's being talked about. It was that they were really trying to force these kind of Jewish cultural norms onto the Gentile converts. And so Paul's going to deal with that as well. And he also wanted to warn the church about pursuing materialism. Do you see why I'm kind of saying that this is actually a really good book for us to go through as the American church right now? See, he is going to address some of the very issues that we deal with on a regular basis. Disunity, materialism, legalism. And so he wanted to deal with this issue of materialism that he didn't want them to be characterized by pursuing stuff. He really wanted them to continue in that, that generosity and that love for one another, to take care of one another, to not get caught up in, in the rat race of having to have the best things, but that Christ could be sufficient, that they could be content in all things. And then last couple of things that we're also going to see. He also wanted to address the, the problematic teaching of perfectionism. I don't know about you guys. Have you ever met a perfect person? Like somebody who's kind of got it all together? Do you, is anybody in here perfect? If you are, please let me know how you did it. I'd love to figure that out. Like we're, we're not perfect, right? But there were those that were going around teaching that like, hey, you could be essentially fully sanctified here on the earth. Like you could kind of get it all together. Like you could be perfect. You could kind of hit this, this ceiling of like, I officially have nothing to work on. And Paul is going to address that issue as well. And then lastly, he really wanted to encourage the church to suffer bravely for the gospel and to trust Christ in all circumstances. And so those are some of the things that he's going to be addressing. But if we really had to boil it down to like the main themes, the topics being addressed, the central theme of this book really is just living the Christian life. What we're going to find about this book is that it tends to lean less on the proper belief scale and more on to like live out your faith scale. So he's not going to be establishing necessarily biblical truths as much as he is like, hey, here's how we're supposed to walk as Christians. This is what we're supposed to do as Christians. Now, I'm not saying it's absent of theology or absent of belief, but he's really leaning into the practical side of things. And so we're going to find that he wants us to live godly Christian lives and really puts a heavy emphasis on it. And he's going to address several uh, really central topics joy, uh, fellowship, you know, living out the Christian life together, as well as knowing Christ and making him known. And so it really what's going to be cool about this letter is that it's going to give us valuable insight into church relationships, how we're supposed to treat one another, how are we supposed to respond to one another, what does that look like to kind of be the church together and to pursue Christ together. That's going to be a very central idea of this book. And it's also going to show that unity is a result of individuals, every last one of us, pursuing the mind of Christ and having the mind of Christ. There can be no unity if we're constantly caught up in selfish ambition, if we're all trying to do our own thing, if we all have our own agenda, we're just kind of trying to manipulate everything for our own gain. If that's how we're acting, then there can't be unity. And so Paul's going to encourage this church, and as well as you know, the Lord's going to encourage us, to pursue unity, and to pursue it by pursuing Christ together, seeking the Lord together. And so, if we are centered on Christ and we rejoice in him together, then unity is a given. That's going to happen, because Christ wants us to be unified. In fact, it was so important that Christ died for the unity of the church, didn't he? 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't times when it becomes necessary to separate from people, but I think far too often, especially here in, in the Western United States, we do it far too easily over the silliest of things. And Christ would actually have us united together. And so those are going to be some of the central themes and ideas. And so we're going to end this all out with just kind of looking at the structure of the book a little bit. And I'm going to leave you with a few considerations to kind of think on before we start the book next week. So this book is going to be structured, as I said before, a little bit different than some of Paul's other letters. Again, it's more personal. It's more practical in tone. It's not going to be quite as belief-heavy. It's not going to be you know this rigid, structured, like, okay... Here's the truth, now do it. Now again, we kind of see that in Ephesians and Colossians where he lays out, here's all the things that God has done for the first three chapters, and then the next three chapters he's like, okay, here's how you respond to it. And we look at Ephesians, right? He says, by grace you've been saved, therefore. Like, you know, the therefore comes in. Okay, now live it out, do it. You know, live according to the calling that God has given you. You know, be worthy of that calling. And so it's very much written in a more personal way practical tone. And so it's not in his usual style. Uh, This epistle also can be broken up into four sections, really kind of four major sections. This is not the only thing that, you know, Paul talks about, but these are kind of the four key ideas that he's going to address. First of all, Paul's going to explain his situation in Rome. Uh, That will be Philippians 1, 12 through 26. Paul is then also going to exhort them to unity. That's going to occur from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way up until verse 18 of chapter 2. Then Paul is going to warn about the Jewish legalists. That's going to happen in chapter 3 and go from verse 2 to 21. And then Paul's thankfulness for their support. And that's going to happen in the last chapter, from uh, chapter 4, from verse 10 to 20. And so he's essentially giving the church an update in various encouragements. That's kind of how this letter is laid out. In a lot of ways, it's kind of how you would write to like a friend, right, that you haven't seen in a while. Yeah, you kind of give them an update on your life. Maybe you kind of know some things are going on. You want to encourage them. You want to lift them up. You know, that's kind of really how this letter is written. It's not quite as, you know, maybe analytical and kind of, you know, very much like step by step. Like, you know, I don't know about you guys. Like when I write an outline, it's very much like bullet one, a, like, I, you know, I, 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 you know, it's like, that's kind of the way that I just process information. This is very much more like you can, you can feel the heart of Paul in this letter towards the Philippians. This is very much a church that he cares about. And so I just want to leave us a few things to ponder, a few things to kind of prep us before we dig into this book next week. As I said before, despite the age of this letter, there's a lot of practical application for the time that we're living in. Yes, it's an ancient book. Yes, it's written to an ancient people. Yes, we're not the Church of Philippi. Yes, this is 2,000 years later, but the truths are still the same. These are still things that we can apply to our present day, and it actually still deals with a lot of issues that we're dealing with right now. I mean, think about it. Trusting Christ in unsure circumstances. I mean, our economy's fluctuating. We have coronavirus and now monkeypox, right? Like, it just seems like it's kind of like one thing after another, you know? Right, how about this one? Like, all the mass shootings that have been going on. Like, society's unsure, isn't it? It just seems like every time you open the news, it's just like there's new reason to despair. And so, we could use this very same encouragement, couldn't we? 
How can we be sure in unsure times? Where does our hope come from? You know, how is it that we can trust Christ in the midst of all of this? Or how about this, preserving unity in the church during times of division? I mean, I don't think the church has really ever been more divided than it is right now. I mean, it's dividing over politics, various theological issues, social issues. It just seems like everybody's got an opinion about everything, and it's just like nobody can agree on anything, right? And I'm not saying there aren't times that we shouldn't disagree with each other, that we shouldn't fight for certain ideals. But at the same time, the Lord's also called us to unity. And so what does that look like for us as the church here in 2022? How about developing contentment in the face of materialism? Honestly, I don't, I don't know if I can even think of a nation that's more materialistic than we are. I mean, truly. I mean, we can't walk 10 feet without seeing a, an ad for like the newest, latest, and greatest iPhone, right? Which basically, I don't know about you, I feel like those things should basically read like iPhone 14. It's exactly the same, but now it can take your blood pressure. Like, right? Like, it just seems like every time a new one comes out, you're like, seriously, that's it? That's all I'm paying like the extra $800 for? It's like, now I can do my hair for me. Actually, don't get me wrong. That actually probably be pretty cool. Save a bunch of trips to the barber, right? <laughs> but like, it just seems like there's always an ad for something, like every 10 feet. It's like, oh, buy this, buy this. You need this in your life. How about this? You need the new car. Hey, I know you just bought one last year, but maybe you should think about getting a new one this year. Like, we live in this very materialistic society. And the need for stuff is eating us alive. And so how is it that we possess contentment in the midst of that. What does that look like for us as the church in the United States? How do we combat that? All of these things are going to be addressed throughout the book of Philippians. These are all things that the Lord is going to encourage us in with this book. And so with that, and this is what I want to leave you with, pray about what God might want to show you in the midst of this book. And be open to whatever that may be. Maybe you're here and you're going to need encouragement. I'll attest to it. There are times in my life that I don't, I don't need to fix more things. Sometimes you just need to be lifted up, right? Sometimes, like, you've, you've been plenty beat up. You know what you need to work on. And sometimes you just need somebody to pick you up and tell you it's okay. Maybe that's God, what God wants to do with you. Maybe he wants to encourage you, lift you up, help you with where you're at. But maybe he does want to change you. Maybe we're going to be going through these studies together. We're going to be reading through the book of Philippians. And the Lord's going to poke at stuff. He says, hey, I kind of want you to work on this. I'm going to help you do it, but I'm going to start dealing with this now. Maybe he wants to convict you of materialism. Maybe you're a little overly contentious. And really the reality is, I'm pretty sure pretty much everybody in this room could probably work on almost all of these things at some level, right? Like we might have it more together than somebody else. But the reality is, if the aim is Jesus, we probably could work on pretty much everything, right? So maybe the Lord wants to change us. Honestly, more than likely, it's probably a combination of both. He wants to encourage us and change us to help us to be more like him. And so be asking yourselves questions. Do I seek to promote unity in the church? Or do I tend to cause strife and division? Do I stir the pot maybe a little too much when I should be trying to bring people together and promote peace? Do I struggle with contentment? You know, do I tend to keep trying to find my satisfaction in a bunch of other things rather than trusting in Christ? Or maybe Lord is 
contentment something that I've got together. Lord, thank you that you are sufficient. Thank you that you are enough. Are you prone to legalism? To lean on your own righteousness, that it becomes about works, it becomes about doing all of the right things, and you're not really actually leaning on the shed blood of Jesus. Because that's right at the core of the gospel, isn't it? That we couldn't do it, so Jesus did. And sometimes we still have that propensity to go back to that, don't we? Well, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just go to church enough times, if I sing all the right worship songs, and I sing them in key, and I hit that high harmony at that one part, like, you know, we can kind of think like, Lord, like, if I could really just get it together, then you'll be, you'll be pleased with me. Rather than just resting in the shed blood of Jesus and saying, God, thank you that I don't have to be perfect, I don't have to have it all together, and that you're sanctifying me and that you're transforming me. Maybe that's something the Lord wants to speak into your life. And so I challenge you, as we're going into the book of Philippians, you know, as we're going to be wrestling with some of these issues, be looking for how God might want to encourage you in this and through this book. Because he might want to poke at some things that he wants to change in your life. And in fact, if we're really being honest, he's probably going to poke at all of us. <laughs> a little bit, maybe. And hopefully he's also going to encourage us. There's a lot of encouragement in this book. That's one of those things that's actually really wonderful about this. That despite the undercurrent of Paul being in prison and facing execution and impending persecution, Paul is actually encouraging the church, like, be content in Christ. Trust in Christ. Cast your anxiety on him. Trust in him. Pray. It's actually a relatively joyful and encouraging book. He's actually calling us to rejoice and to be joyful. And so be praying about what God might want to minister to you. Lastly, I want to give you a little bit of homework. I challenge you to read the book of Acts before next week because it's going to help give you some context as to who Paul is, what he's writing about, a little bit of context about this church. If you really can't read through the whole book of Acts, which I think you could do it, but if you feel like you don't have enough time, I totally get that. I've got a two-year-old. I have to scrape 10 minutes out of every single day. And so if you can... Read chapter 16 and, uh, and just look at some of the characters that Paul was able to minister to that are now a part of this Philippian church. And so be praying. See how the Lord might want to use this book in your life. And then uh, next week we're going to dig into the letter to the Philippians. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you are faithful to minister to us where we're at. Lord, thank you for, uh, Lord, your, your wisdom. Lord, the wisdom that you gave uh, Pastor Chet and the leaders of the church to, to dig into this book in particular. Lord, it's very timely for where we're at here as a nation, as a church, in this day and age. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every last one of us. Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us. Lord, if need be, that you would rebuke us, that you would help us to truly to possess the image of your Son, that we would possess the image of Christ in everything that we do, in the way that we respond, the way that we act, Lord, that we truly would be a church that could be modeled, just as the Philippian church in a lot of ways was a church to be modeled. Lord, would we be people that possess unity and joy and that we would rejoice at your coming, Lord, knowing that despite how bad things get or what's going on, Lord, we can trust in you and know that you have a plan in all of these things. And so, Lord, would you use the book of Philippians in our lives? Would you transform us and change us? And thank you, Lord, that you are capable, able, and faithful to do so. 
Lord, if we just put our trust in you. And so we love you. We give you the rest of our evening. Would you bless it? And Lord, would you even be now working in us and showing us what you would want to speak to us, Lord, as we go through this new book, the book of Philippians. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.